Well, today, as we are, again, blessed to be together on this Christmas morning, uh, I want to begin our time together in the Word by asking you to run through a little mental exercise with me. I want you to think with me through a question. Here's the question. You ready? If you wrote a song about your Christmas, what would your song include? If you wrote, we just sang a bunch of songs. If you wrote a song about Christmas, what would your song include? Now, again, maybe that seems like a bit of an odd question this morning, but we know that a lot of people have written a lot of songs about Christmas, and they've included a lot of stuff in those songs. So if you had to write one, maybe take a moment to think about what you would include in your Christmas song. Now, because it's a song, we'd want to make sure we put in some words that rhyme, right? That's part of writing a song. So, mistletoe rhymes with snow, so we could use those words. Um, The phrase holiday festivities would probably be a bit more difficult. But if we wanted to write a song about holiday festivities, we might include phrases like nativity, proclivities, and activities. You have no idea how long it took me to come up with that. And I still don't think it would make a very good Christmas song. Again, take a moment and think about what you would include if you had to write a song about Christmas. Would your song about Christmas focus on all of the the holiday trappings that come with Christmas? Would it be like jingle bells or walking through a winter wonderland? Would you sing about the the decorations of Christmas times and the traditions and weather conditions? You know, like let it snow or I'm dreaming of a white Christmas. Would you write your song about that or would you take a different focus? Maybe some of us especially today, maybe you got up and opened your presents. Maybe some of us might be tempted to write a song about all of the gifts that we got for Christmas. You know, like the, the 12 days of Christmas, only we'd write a song focused on gifts that people would actually want. You ever take time to think through the 12 days of Christmas and realize how many birds are given as gifts in that song? You've got two turtle doves, three French hen, four calling birds, six geese, and seven swans a swimming. That's over 20 birds. Imagine if you had got up this morning and under your Christmas tree were over 20 birds and uh, some of them were swans. Uh, that'd be a lot of mess on Christmas, right? <laughs> Give them to the farmers. But honestly, that's not a present I, I would necessarily want. So maybe you'd write a Christmas song about 12 days of stuff you'd actually like to get. You know, like two grande lattes, three gift cards from Amazon, four tickets to a Seahawks game, and I'll see if I can sing this, and a five-hour nap, right? (laughs) Because after the holiday, the Christmas season, who couldn't use a good long nap? Now, maybe five hours might be a little long, but you get my point. So again, if you had to write a song about Christmas, what would you focus on? Would you write about the, the gifts that you were so generously given? Or maybe, maybe for you that might feel a little too materialistic. So you'd rather focus on other things like, like relationships, family at Christmas. People have written a lot of songs, Christmas songs, about those things, about gathering together with family and about finding love at Christmas. You have songs that range from, oh, there's no place like home for the holidays, to all I want for Christmas is you, to grandma got run over by a reindeer. <laughs> Which is a song about family, albeit a a twisted song about family. But what would your song include if you wrote a song about Christmas? And as you think through that question, I want to ask you a second question. Here's the second question. What would your song reveal about your understanding of Christmas? 
What would your song reveal about your understanding of Christmas? And by that I mean, what would the items that you chose to put in your Christmas song reveal about the way that you thought of Christmas? If we wrote a song that only included lines about family or gifts or snowy weather, what would that say about our understanding of the point of Christmas? So if you had to write a Christmas song, what would you include? And what would what you included say about your understanding of Christmas? Those are my questions to get us started this morning. And I raised those questions as we get started this morning because those are questions that have been on my mind. And they've been on my mind because of the passage of Scripture that we began studying together two weeks ago. Two weeks ago, we've been looking at uh, what I'll say loosely is a Christmas song, a Christmas song that is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. So I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. If not, we have some in the back that we can hand out. But I want you to take your Bibles and turn over to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. So you got Matthew, Mark, and then Luke, chapter 1. And this Christmas song that we've been studying, which is found in Luke chapter 1, verses 46 to 55, is the song of Mary. It's the Christmas song of Mary. And it is a poetic expression, it's a song that she wrote in response to receiving the news that she would miraculously have a child And that that child would be both the Lord and Savior of the world. This song that we've been studying through these last several weeks is her response to the news of the Advent. But as I've been thinking about her song and as I've been studying her song, I've been asking my questions. I've been asking my questions. Mary, why did you include what you included in your Christmas song? And what does what you included in your Christmas song reveal about your understanding of Christmas, your understanding of the Advent. See, the questions that I raised with you this morning, those are the same questions I've been asking of Mary and her song. Now, we could simply answer those questions by saying Mary's song includes what it includes because that's what God wanted his word to say. Mary's song here in verses 46 to 55 is part of the Bible, and the Bible teaches, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is breathed out by God. So all scripture is from God. It's the very word of God. And so that's one way to answer my question. Mary's song says what it says because that's what God wanted his word to say. But if we simply answer my question that way, we miss out on a very important reality. And that's the reality of the human process which God used to give us his divine word. The human process which God used to give us his divine word. You see, God did not give us his word through mindless dictation. Mary wasn't mindlessly passive in this process of writing her song. She, just like all of the human authors of scripture, was actively engaged. God used her vocabulary. God used her writing style. God used her abilities and her thoughts to communicate his thoughts. It's actually an amazing miracle. This process of the divine word being given flawlessly through very real and very engaged human authors. Actually parallels aspects of the incarnation. The word of God coming to us in very human trappings. Not faulty, not false, not fallible trappings. It's true, but coming to us in very human trappings. But that reality, that Mary was active 
and engaged in this process of writing the song has led me to ask my questions. Mary, why do you include what you include? Why, when she is led to write the song in response to the news of the Advent, does she sing about the things which she sings about? And what does she sing about? Well, look at the text. First, she begins by singing about her joy. Look at the opening lines of her song there in verses 46 and 47. She says what? My soul, what? What does she say? Magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. As I mentioned two weeks ago when we began the series, Mary's song is not a subtle celebration. Hers is not a ho-hum response to Christmas. Although she is a, a young woman in a very difficult situation, she is a poor marginalized member of society who is now pregnant outside of marriage and none of those things are making the situation easy for her although she's in a very difficult situation her situation isn't dampening her spirits is it instead she shows us a heart overflowing with deep and profound joy she says my soul magnifies my spirit rejoices And by using those two terms, soul and spirit, Mary is speaking about that which is deep and that which is real in her. Those are terms that the Bible uses together to speak of the true self, the real you. It's not the the facade that we're tempted to show people. No, it's the real you. And so Mary is saying that from her depths, in her sincerity, she desires to magnify the Lord. To magnify the Lord. Now, when you hear that word magnify, when we hear that word magnify, <clears throat> we often think of what you do with a magnifying glass. And what do you do with a magnifying glass? You take little things, right, and make them appear big. That's not what Mary's doing here. That's not what Mary's doing here. She's not trying to take a little God and make him appear big. That's not what she means when she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Instead, what she is doing is bringing a big God into focus. It's more like the magnification that is found in the lenses of a telescope. A telescope doesn't take stars and planets and make them big, does it? What does it do? Instead, it's because we're so far away, right? A telescope simply helps us get a better handle on how big and how amazing and how glorious those heavenly bodies really are. And that's what Mary is doing here. From the deepest part of her being, she wants everyone to see how how glorious, how amazing the Lord truly is. She's helping to bring the glory of God into focus for us. She's magnifying God. And she says she's rejoicing in him. She is glorifying God because he is the source of her joy. That's what rejoicing means. It's one of those Bible words sometimes we just read over, right? But that's what it means. You rejoice in something that, when you rejoice in something, you're you're celebrating that that's the source of your joy. Until the very end of the Seahawks game yesterday, there were people rejoicing in the Seahawks. They were saying, oh, a touchdown, this is the source of my joy. And then other things happened. And people's joy was taken away. But when you rejoice in something, you're celebrating it as the source of your joy. Joy. And deep down, God is the source of Mary's joy. That's how her Christmas song begins. And it begins that way. She sees God as her joy and wants everyone to see how amazing he truly is. Because she realizes what God is doing through the Advent. 
Again, look at what she sings about. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in, what does she say next? In God, my, what does she say? My savior. You see, she understands that the advent is about a savior. It's about coming, God coming in in his redeeming grace to rescue and deliver his own. And she sees this happening for her. Look at verses 48 and 49. She says, verse 48, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And as I mentioned two weeks ago, that phrase, that verb looked on, it doesn't mean that all of a sudden God became aware of her condition. He just, oh, all of a sudden he paid attention. No, instead that verb means to look with love and compassion. It's seeing a need and then, then being moved to do something about that need. And that's just what Mary sees God doing for her. She says, he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For Behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Why? For he who is mighty has done great things for, for me. For me, she says, and holy is his name. Mary, through, through this gift of a child, that's going to be much more than a child, she's seen God's grace invading her life. God's grace for her. But she also realizes that this is not just about her. This is about a grace for all who are needy. Starting there in verse 50, the focus of Mary's song expands. She says, And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. As our brother David, when he was preaching last week, as he pointed out from this text, Mary's song here focuses on this great reversal of God's grace. She is rejoicing that God's mercy is for those who are needy and who know it. That's important. It's for those who are needy and those who know it. It's for those who fear God, not for those who are arrogantly self-reliant. Mary rejoices in this great reversal in which those who are full of themselves will be scattered and brought down and sent away empty. But those who are of a humble estate, those who like Mary are needy and know it, will be met and satisfied by the grace of God. And isn't that the glory of God's grace? Isn't that the glory of his grace? God's grace is for the broken. Amen? It's for the needy, right? It's for the empty. And Mary sees that truth at the heart of the advent. She writes a song that celebrates how God's grace cuts through this world's merit-based, works-based, self-righteous system. She says, his mercy, this Savior is coming, and he is for those who know how much they really need him. For those who know their situation. But then look at how she ends her song. Look at, at who she talks about at the end of her Christmas song. In verses 54 and 55, she says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Let me ask you this question. When I asked you a few moments ago, 
think about what you would include in your Christmas song. How many of you have thought about including Abraham? How many of you was like up there at the top of your list? Have you ever seen Abraham in a nativity scene? How many of your kids ever had the role of Abraham in the annual Christmas program? How many Christmas songs do we actually have that mention Abraham? Got one here. (laughs) One here. He's here in Mary's song. He's actually here in the climactic conclusion of Mary's song. And that's because Abraham was an important piece of the advent for Mary. Again, remember my two questions. What would you include in your Christmas song? And what does what you include reveal about your understanding of Christmas? Here in the end of Mary's song, she is revealing something very important about her understanding of the advent. She is revealing that she understands that the advent is bigger than what is happening in that moment or what will happen in the months or even the years to follow. Her song shows us that that Christmas is bigger than shepherds or wise men, or a manger, or even a miraculous virgin birth. Now, it includes all of those things, and all of those things are important, but her song is showing us that the Advent is bigger than all of those things. The end of her song shows us that the Advent is part of a much bigger narrative, a bigger story, going back at least to the days of Abraham. And by Mary's inclusion of Abraham and pointing us all to this much bigger story, Mary is revealing a very important truth about Christmas, a very important truth about the Advent. She is rejoicing and magnifying God because she realizes, and don't miss this, she realizes that the Advent is a declaration of the faithfulness of God. The Advent is a declaration of the faithfulness of God. That's what the ending of her song is really all about. It's a celebration of the faithfulness of God, a God who keeps his promises. It's beautiful, this humble young woman, Miss Mary, our our sister in the faith, she's pointing all of us to this truth, that the Advent is a declaration of the faithfulness of God. And in our time remaining this morning, I want to show you how she makes that point. Let me show you how she makes that point. First, Mary's song shows us that Christmas is about promises made. Christmas is about promises made. And by that, I don't mean promises about what you're going to get from Santa Claus underneath the Christmas tree. Uh, I mean something much, much bigger than that. Look again at how Mary describes what God is doing in the Advent. Look at verse 54. Verse 54, she says, He has helped, He has helped His servant Israel in remembrance of His mercy. And then she says, verse 55, as He spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. When what Mary is doing here is saying that God's present action of helping, he has helped. And what we'll see in a few moments is that's her way of describing the advent. He has helped. This present action of helping is grounded in a previous action of speaking. A previous action of speaking, just as he spoke to our fathers. And that speaking was a speaking, she says, it's to our fathers. And by that, she means the, the patriarchs, the patriarchs of Israel. And, and who were the patriarchs of Israel? Well, there was Jacob, the, the namesake. You remember Jacob? He was a trickster. He was a deceiver. He was a man who was eventually humbled by God, but after having wrestled with God. And in that moment, his name is changed from Jacob to Israel. That's why I say he's the namesake to Israel. And Israel means one who strives 
with God. So you have Jacob, but Jacob, or Israel, was the son of a man named Isaac. Isaac was Jacob's father, and Isaac was a miracle baby. He was a child born to parents who were way, way past their childbearing years. I'm not talking like they were in their 40s or 50s. Way past their childbearing years. But God had made a promise, a promise to Isaac's parents that they would have a child. And here's the thing. God always, 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 always keeps his promises. Amen? Even when it seems like they're impossible to keep. God always keeps his promises. And who were these parents to whom God kept this seemingly impossible promise? Well, there was a mother. Her name was Sarah. And her husband, the father, whose name was Abraham. And Abraham was really the father of the fathers, the patriarch of the patriarchs of Israel. And Mary mentions him here explicitly in her song. She says that God spoke to these patriarchs to Abraham and his offspring. Now, the speaking that Mary is describing here is not simply a conversation about the weather. That's not what she's talking about. No, Mary is speaking about a much more profound conversation topic. She is referencing a conversation that we first find recorded for us in Genesis chapter 12. So take your Bibles for a moment and turn back to the book of Genesis chapter 12. And let's look at God speaking to Abraham. And as you're turning there to Genesis chapter 12, I'll probably ask this question for you. How many of you, when you came here this morning thinking you were going to get a Christmas message, thought we'd be in Genesis chapter 12? (laughs) But I think what Mary is doing is pointing us to something very important that maybe we lose sight of this time of year. Maybe we lose sight of. So Genesis chapter 12. And look at what we find here, starting in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 12. Now, the Lord said, or spoke... To Abraham, to Abram, which was his name before God changed it to Abraham. But the Lord said or spoke to Abraham, <clears throat> Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's what God spoke to Abraham. He gave Abraham promises. Promises. He gave Abraham a promise of a place. Abraham was to leave his country, his place, and God was going to give him a better country, a better place. And God gave Abraham a promise of a people. God was going to make of Abraham, from Abraham, through Abraham, a great nation. That's why having that first child, Isaac, with his wife, Sarah, was so important. Isaac, that miracle baby, was the first step in God fulfilling that promise of a great nation, a great people coming from Abraham. But God didn't just promise Abraham a place and a people. Again, look at our text here, Genesis 12. He told Abraham that through him, all the families of the earth would be what? Blessed. So God gave Abraham a promise of global blessing. So this is what God spoke to Abraham. 
But here's the thing. You don't just find those promises this one time in this one passage of Scripture. This conversation was a repeated conversation. God spoke of these promises multiple times to Abraham. We find God affirming these promises in Genesis chapter 15, in Genesis chapter 17, Genesis chapter 18, and Genesis chapter 22. So over and over again, he affirmed these promises to Abraham. (laughs) But he didn't just affirm them to Abraham. Over in Genesis 26, we read this. Listen, this is from Genesis 26. The Lord appeared to Isaac, a miracle baby, who's now grown up. It's a man. The Lord appeared to Isaac and said, I will be with you and will bless you. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father, and I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And I will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, and it's literally your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So in this text, we hear God speaking to the offspring of Abraham, and he is affirming these same promises. And God keeps on affirming those promises. Over in Genesis chapter 28, we see God come and speak to Isaac's son, Jacob. Remember, Jacob had left home, uh, difficult situation. Some things were not going very well there at home. So he leaves home and he's camping out in the wilderness. And then he had a rock for his pillow and the stars for his tent. But while Jacob slept under those stars, he had a dream. Remember what his dream was? The angels ascending and descending. And then God came and spoke to him. And God said this to him. Listen, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, Jacob, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So do you see, do you hear what God spoke to the patriarchs? He kept repeating this promise, these promises of a place, and a people, and blessings. But here's the thing. Those promises weren't just given to the patriarchs, and they aren't just mentioned in Genesis. These these promises are given to the people of God, the descendants of Abraham, and they're echoed throughout the entire Old Testament. You find them sung about in the Psalms. If we had time, we'd go and look at them in the Psalms. You find them preached about by the prophets. If we had time, we'd go walk through the prophets and see them there. They were things that kings rejoiced in and servants clung to. They formed, these promises formed the foundation of Israel's identity. And these promises were to be the seedbed of Israel's hope. And what we see in Mary's song is that these promises were important to her. That's why she sings about them. She knew. She knew that God had made promises to his people. And she also knew that those promises were an expression of his mercy. Go ahead and turn back now to Luke chapter 1. Turn back to Mary's song. She knew that these promises were an expression of his mercy. Notice again here, Luke chapter 1. Notice again the progression of Mary's thought. She says, excuse me. She says, verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And here what she is doing, don't miss this, is she is connecting God's mercy with what God spoke, his promises. 
And I think actually what she's doing here is using this term mercy as actually another way to describe God's promises, his, his covenant with Abraham and Israel. She is saying that God has helped us in remembrance of his mercy, his mercy being those promises that he spoke to our fathers. And why is she calling it mercy? Well, she understood that God covenanted to do those things for Abraham and for his offspring, not because Abraham and his offspring were deserving of those things, a place of people and blessings. Instead, God covenanted to do those things simply out of his mercy. It was an act of his mercy grounded in his sovereign, free grace. His grace. And Mary knows that. Mary knows that. But now with the advent, she also knows that those merciful promises are being fulfilled. She sees that God is, as she puts it, remembering his mercy. Here's a question for us. Why does she put it that way? He has helped his servant in remembrance of his mercy. Bringing a little bit into my studying process, I'm working through this. Why, Mary, did you put it that way? In remembrance of his mercy. Had God forgotten? Had God forgotten? Did did he forget about those oaths and promises that he swore to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob? Had he he lost track somewhere? Oh, I don't remember where that's at. I don't know where these, oh, I made some promises at one time. Is that what had happened? Had he forgotten? Had he lost track? Oh, promise of place and people and worldwide blessing. Say, well, that's silly, Ryan. But, For many, like Mary, it might have felt that way. It might have felt like God had forgotten them. You see, Mary was part of a subjugated people. That time in history, the Roman Empire ruled over the Jews, ruled over the Jewish people. And so although God had promised them a place, a true home of blessing, uh, it probably didn't feel like they had a place, especially for many in, in Mary's situation. Uh, if you study history, you see that the Romans used and abused the Jewish people. They taxed them, they enslaved them, and when they rebelled, they crucified them. So Mary probably didn't grow up feeling like she'd been given a better place, a better place. And as for a people, uh, what the uh, gospel accounts make clear is that she lived among a spiritually bankrupt people. The Jewish nation at that that time had become a legalistic, uh, religiously exploitive facade of true godliness. They they were so far from being the people who God desired them to be. And when it came to blessing the world through Abraham's offspring, that must have seemed at that time like it was so far from reality. Again, especially for people like Mary. Where did Mary live? Remember the town? Nazareth. Way off, out in the middle of nowhere, obscure little village, Nazareth. How could people that lived in such a place have any impact on the world, let alone be a blessing to the world? So there were probably moments when it felt absolutely like God had forgotten his promises. His mercy. But looking at Mary's song, this is not a bitter rant about feeling forgotten, is it? It's not a bitter rant. Instead, it is a deep down, soul-filled celebration about being remembered. It's a celebration of promises that are kept. 
And that too is what Mary's song reveals about the advent. Mary sees, she now understands that the Christmas, Christmas is not just about promises given. Christmas is about promises kept. Promises kept. She sings about the remembrance of his mercy. The remembrance of his mercy. And that phrase, remembrance of mercy, I think it captures uh, a similar idea to what we saw earlier back in verse 48 when we saw, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. There it wasn't that all of a sudden God noticed Mary, but it was that he was actively pursuing her. And so it wasn't as though God had actually forgotten. It's just that now she is seeing, she is witnessing, she is beholding in this moment God's active, present fulfilling of those promises made so long ago. She realizes that she is in the moment when God's great promise plan is invading history. Invading history. And she describes God's active present fulfillment of those promises as help. Again, look at the text. She says, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. That's what she sees happening in the advent. God is fulfilling the promises by sending help to his people. Here's an important question for us. How? How? How would God help his people... And how is that help a fulfillment of those promises made so long ago? It's an important question. How is it help and how is it a fulfillment of those promises made so long ago? It's an important question. Here's the answer. What had Mary been told about the advent? Remember the angelic announcement that we read two weeks ago as we started this series? Look, look at it again. Look back in the text. Look at what the angel Gabriel tells Mary starting in verse 31. Let's start in verse 31. Luke chapter 1 verse 31. She, the angel Gabriel says to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Now watch this. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You see, what Mary is being told is that help is coming. Don't miss this. Help is coming in the form of a king. Help is coming in the form of a king. And her song reveals that she sees this king as bringing the fulfillment of these promises of a place and a people and worldwide blessing. And he will bring the fulfillment of those things through his kingdom. This is a king with a kingdom, his kingdom that will never end. His kingdom will bring that place. His kingdom will gather those people. And his kingdom will be a means of blessing the world. But here's the thing, so important for us to realize. This son of Mary, who will be a king, will not be a king with a kingdom like many in his day nor in ours expect. He will be an unexpected king. As Luke goes on to show us in chapter 2 of his gospel, we read it this morning. Um, this king will not be born in a palace, will he? Nor in riches. He will be born in poverty, surrounded by animals, laid in a manger and worshipped by lowly shepherds. And he will grow up back in obscurity in Mary's hometown of Nazareth in the out-of-the-way region of Galilee. He will never know riches or wealth 
like the kings of this world. But as he grew and he came into his manhood and began his public life, it was also not the public life that you would expect of a king. He was encompassed by the poor, the lowly, the marginalized, and the destitute. He was surrounded by the type of people that Mary sings about in her song, those of a humble estate. But he did great things for them. He taught them the truth like no one had ever taught them the truth. And he took their burdens from them. He healed them of their diseases and and he delivered them from their oppression. And you would have expected the entire nation and really the whole world to embrace this humble, kind, meek, wise king. But in another unexpected turn in this story, instead of being embraced, what happened to that king? He was rejected. He was rejected. And it wasn't the type of slow drift off into obscurity rejection, you know, like the crowds gradually started getting smaller and people just grew bored with him. No, it wasn't that type of rejection at all. It was a passionate, forceful, violent rejection of this king. It was in a rejection that ended in abuse and scorn and ultimately in death. This king, Jesus, was hung upon a Roman cross to die like a slave or a traitor. But in that death, a death that he in no way deserved, God was doing the most unexpected thing for the world. The Apostle Paul, that that great theologian of the early church and missionary companion of Luke, the writer of this gospel, he explained what happened on the cross this way. This is 1 Corinthians 15.3. This is a phrase we should all just have etched in our minds. 1 Corinthians 15.3. Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins. That was what was happening through the death of this king. Christ died for our sins. We are all, every single one of us, sinners. We're all sinners. We have all sinned. We have all rebelled against God and his holy standard. And we have done so in innumerable ways. If we were to try to take time this morning and list them out, if I was to take time this morning and just list out my sins, we would be here till well, it'd be a long time. But we're all sinners and we've all rebelled against God's holy standard in innumerable ways. We've all said, even, maybe it wasn't out loud, but at least in our hearts, we've all said, I don't care what you want, God. It's my life and I will do what I want. But he's our creator. And he's our sustainer. And he's the one who gives us life and breath, and every good gift that we enjoy. Shouldn't we honor him? But we don't. We have turned, every single one of us, from his good ways, his good purposes. We've done so countless times. We have all sinned. And here's the thing. Sin has brought us separation. Separation. Once, long before the days of Abraham, we all had a place. We all had a place. We were all one people. 
the people of God dwelling with him in paradise. That was the reality of the entire human race. That was our reality in Adam and Eve in the garden. That was our reality. People of the place, Adam and Eve dwelling in the garden. But then we sinned. Adam, the head of our race, sinned, and we all lost our place. We were all removed from being part of the people of God. We, through our sin, were separated from him. And we became the people of a fallen world, a fallen place, and a fallen sinful humanity, a fallen people. That was our place. That was our people. But God is gracious and good. God is gracious and good. And this gracious and good God gave promises. Promises of a better place. Promises of a better people. And he gave those promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Israel and to Mary. And those promises were the promises of blessing for the entire world. But here's the thing, and this is so important to understand. In order to give any of us a place and in order to make any of us a part of a people, And over any of us to know that blessing, God had to remove that which originally caused the separation. And that's what this king, this son of Mary, was doing on the cross. He was giving us help. He was fulfilling the promises by removing the separation. He was paying for our sin. And he actually did pay for it. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And so Jesus died for our sins. But maybe in the most unexpected turn of this story of this unexpected king, the king who died didn't stay dead. He didn't stay dead. On the third day, he rose from the dead, never to die again. And he rose showing that he had conquered death and sin. These enemies, think about this, these enemies that had ruled the human race since Genesis chapter 3. I mean, can you get a king like this king? He conquered the enemies of sin and death. There is no king like this king. And he rose making it clear who he truly is. The son of Mary is also the son of who? The son of God. The apostle Paul says in the opening of his letter to the Romans, he speaks of Jesus who was descended from David according to the flesh, but was declared to be the son of God in power. Listen to this, by the resurrection, his resurrection from the dead. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, through his death and resurrection, Jesus, who is the Christ, who is this king, he became the help that Mary sings about in her song. And he is the help for the entire world. You see, through his death and resurrection, he opens the way to the better country, the better place, the true promised land, the paradise of, of dwelling with God himself in the kingdom of God's beloved son. And all who dwell in that kingdom are the true people of God. They are those who belong to God, those who are cherished by God, those of whom God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. But as Mary's song makes so clear, this kingdom is not given 
to those who think that they deserve it. It's not a kingdom for those who are full of self-assurance and self-righteousness. The proud and the arrogant who demand this kingdom, they will be scattered, and as Mary sings, they will be sent away empty. But those who realize, please hear this, those who realize how needy and desperate they truly are, that because of their sin, they're bringing nothing to the table but sin. Those who realize how needy and desperate they are, they will be freely given this kingdom as an act of God's merciful grace. And the entry point into this kingdom is simple. This king and his kingdom are received by faith. By faith. We, in faith, embrace who this king truly is. He is God, our savior, the promised And that's what the Advent is really all about. It's about promises given and promises kept through the coming of Jesus, the King. And those promises are of a better place and a better people, a kingdom that will be forever. And the glorious things, it's for anyone and for everyone. It's it's how God, through the seed of Abraham, has brought blessing for the whole world. And it all declares, it all declares his faithfulness. His faithfulness. Christmas is a declaration of the faithfulness of God. A God who keeps his promises in a way that that blows our minds. That blows our minds. So when Mary wrote a song about Christmas, that's what she chose to include. That's how she chose to end. A declaration of the faithfulness of God. And I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, I'm so glad that she did. I'm so glad that she did. Because that's something we all need to remember. Amen? During Christmas time and all year round, our God is a faithful God. A God who keeps his promises in ways that just blow our minds. Our God is a God who is faithful. Who remembers his promises, his mercy, And he continues to give his people help through the person of his son, Jesus. So let's all delight today to celebrate that today, the faithfulness of God, and to sing with our sister Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrances of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we praise you for your glorious, magnificent, amazing plan. We thank you for your kindness in giving these promises. Promises bigger than Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or even the nation of Israel. Promises about restoration of a place and a people. Because through our sin, we'd lost those things. We were separated from the place, separated from the people. We were outside of dwelling with you. So we thank you for your grace and your kindness, that in your glorious plan, you purposed a way 
bring us back to dwelling with you, to bring us back to being part of your people. And we thank you that that way is not us accomplishing a myriad of religious activities. We thank you that the way in is not us being the best or the brightest. We thank you that the way in is not about the family in which we're born into, our gender, our social status. But the way in is beautiful and simple. It's by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. And we praise you that that is an entry point for anyone. That we just need to come to that place of realizing how needy and desperate we are. That we are on the outside because of our sin and our rebellion. But we can dwell with you forever in the kingdom of your son forever. Being your people forever. Simply by embracing this one who came, who was born of Mary, who lived that sinless life, who died on that cross for our sins, and who rose the third day, the triumphant king over sin and death. We thank you for this glorious message of Christmas, this good news, this gospel. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.